morning, everyone. Good to have you here. We're continuing in Matthew. We backtracked to Matthew 1 and 2 for this time of the year. And we are in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus is very different than Luke's. Uh, Matthew seems in a hurry to move the story along. And as you go through Matthew, that's fairly characteristic of his gospel. Uh, He doesn't mention the census, he doesn't mention the trip to Bethlehem or the stable or the shepherds or any of that, and all of the circumstances of Jesus' birth are certainly unexpected and shocking even that the God of the universe would be born into such humble circumstances, laying in a feed trough, in a barn, all of those things. Matthew leaves all of those details to Luke. Luke is the traditional Christmas story that you read at this time because he covers the whole nativity scene. But Matthew does record something for us that his Jewish readers would find equally shocking and perhaps serves Matthew's purpose in writing even a little bit better because Matthew has an intent here. He wants people to know that Christ has come, and as we looked at in his genealogy and in other areas in the first few chapters of Matthew, he wants people to know that Christ has come not only for the people of Israel, not only for the nation of Israel, but for all nations, among other things. And so Matthew records the part where the wise men from the east are drawn to Israel by supernatural signs in order to encounter the Messiah, and these pagan magicians essentially embarrass a city full of Orthodox Jews. That's what we're looking at this morning. That's what Matthew records. So if you'll join with me, it's Matthew 2, 1 to 12. Uh, It'll be on the screen, but you can also look there in your Bibles or phones. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the reading of God's word. I want to unpack the action of this text in four different ways for the wise men. And the four ways are going to be seeking, seeing, worshiping, and treasuring Jesus. And along the way, as we sort of unpack those four verbs or those four action items of the wise men, we want to see how this may apply very personally to us today. And so we start with this notion of seeking Jesus. 
It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They were seeking Jesus. And just as a little preamble, you need to know this going into the story, this is all occurring roughly 4 B.C., Okay, and that may shock you, but the Gregorian calendar, uh, as we have it today, has been adjusted several times over the years, and an error of four to five years was discovered and adjusted for. So 0 AD uh, is not exactly the year of Jesus' birth on our calendar. And so it was quite amusing when Y2K was coming along, and Christians were very excited about the 2,000th year since Jesus' birth. It's like it already happened in 1995. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't have to get that excited about it. (laughs) Calendar's wrong. So this is four or five years B.C., and it's probably anywhere between six to 18 months after Jesus was actually born, probably closer to six than 18, but we don't know exactly. The wise men did not arrive with the shepherds, and I'm not going to belabor the anachronisms of our nativity scenes any more than that, but they were not there with the shepherds. They came after. The other little preamble here, just so you get the context right, is that the Herod that's mentioned here is the father of the three other Herods that we encounter in the Bible. This is Herod the Great. Uh, he was set up as a king by Rome and allowed to rule under Roman authority. He was a wicked king, uh, and you will see if you keep reading in chapter 2. And, and when he died, his, ter- his territory got split up among his three sons uh, who were both wicked and stupid. And they ruled so poorly that Rome eventually sent a procurator or a governor uh, to do the business of governing because they were so bad at it. And that's why Pontius Pilate presides over the crucifixion of Jesus. But he includes one of the sons, Herod Antipas, in the proceedings. Okay, So there's multiple Herods in the New Testament. Don't get confused. This is Herod the Great. This is the first wicked one uh, of all the wicked Herods. And so... Again, just to set the context, this is in the days of Herod the Great, and verse 1 tells us that wise men or magi or magicians come from the east, probably Persia or Babylon, and they come to the capital city of Jerusalem, and they have this question. And I hate to do it, but I have another small aside here, so we're not preoccupied with what isn't terribly important. It doesn't matter how the star worked, okay? Um, (laughs) Okay. Don't get distracted by thoughts about supernovas or comets or planets in conjunction or any of those things. Matthew doesn't record how that works. It's completely not important. But what is important about the star and that Matthew does communicate is that the natural order of things in the universe was disrupted by the arrival of Jesus. So much so that astrologers or magicians actually noticed the pretentious signs of what had taken place while they were observing the stars. And God used the movements of stars or planets or comets or whatever it was in such a way as to reveal his working in the world, and he revealed it to complete pagans. This is what I think Matthew's highlighting here. Jesus came, the universe knows, the pagan magicians know, but his own people don't even know that he has arrived. And John 1.11 puts it this way, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And so these magicians or magi have come seeking a king who's worthy of their worship. They already have worship on their minds. And Isaiah 63 says, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. 
So this is the dawning of the king and nations and kings and wise men are coming in this way to worship him. And so these wise men, of course, go to the capital city of Israel in Jerusalem and they went straight to the palace to talk to Herod because they knew that what they saw meant that a king had been born. So where else would you go to find a king except the palace in the capital city? And so imagine their surprise when the king doesn't know anything about it and the scribes don't know anything about it. And the whole town and the whole city is upset by this news that a king of the Jews has been born. And these magi know it. They're at the palace. Nobody else seems to know what's taken place. They knew it. And they knew that they should worship him. And Herod has all his wise men and all the people of the city. They didn't know Jesus had been born. Now sometimes it isn't just Jerusalem or Israel that looks like this. Sometimes the church looks like this. I mean, the wise men come to Jerusalem expecting a celebration. They're expecting there to be a party going on. They're expecting joy and happiness at the birth of this portentous king of Israel. And instead, they find people completely oblivious to what's happened in their midst. And sometimes brand new Christians or even people who have heard of Jesus for the first time and who are seeking him can come into a church expecting joy and happiness and celebration over what's happened in the midst of God's people and they don't find it. And these brand new Christians are these people who are looking for hope and they joy. They come into the church and it's like, I thought you guys were going to be more excited about this. I mean, I just found out that I'm loved by the God of the universe, that there's hope, that there's joy. That there's light instead of darkness. Why are you all so somber and complaining about the coffee? (laughs) Right? Or that the kids are too loud or something. Like, this is exciting news that you guys have and you don't even seem to be aware of what is going on in your midst. And so they expect to find people overflowing with joy and celebrating and laughing and full of excitement over this great Savior that dwells with them. But not everybody finds that, not even in the church. I hope they find it here. I hope we're more like the wise men and less like the citizens of Jerusalem who seemed oblivious to what had happened. When people come looking for Jesus in our midst, they should find us rejoicing with great joy and celebrating without end the eternal king who has come. Not plodding through life as though nothing happened or disturbed that someone might upset the status quo. That's what Herod was like. That's what the citizens of Jerusalem were like, but the wise men knew they had come to worship and celebrate a new king. The news of Jesus actually troubled Herod and the people of the city. It says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Everybody was troubled. And so right away in his account here, Matthew sets up a disturbing contrast. Do you see the contrast he's created right away? The Gentiles know about Jesus and want to worship him. The pagan magicians know who he is and they want to come and worship him. The Jews are unaware and oblivious that this has even happened and they're not even sure how they should react to the news. And the truth is Jesus still creates this reaction in people today. If Jesus is not the recipient of your worship, then Jesus will be a source of trouble for you. He will disturb and disrupt and agitate you until he is the one you worship. Everybody has to eventually decide what are they going to do about Jesus. Because his presence is not an option. He's already here. 
You've got to decide what you're going to do with him. And if you don't worship him, you will find in your life, and maybe some of you are sitting here today because you have found in your life, that he won't leave you alone. He will continue to disturb and disrupt and make you anxious and think about him in such a way that you just have to eventually deal with him. And that's what's happened here. Herod's upset. The people are upset. You're saying the Messiah has come. Christ has come. What do we do about this? So now everyone is seeking Jesus. Where is he? Who is he? Let's read on. Matthew set up this contrast between Gentiles and Jews, kind of embarrassing the Jews and making it appear as though even Gentiles can come to this king. It says, In assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born. So not just the king, but the Messiah. They've, They've realized now who this is. And so they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. It talks about Bethlehem. And the, the first thing you notice here is that somewhere along the way in this dialogue or investigation, it's become clear that this king of the Jews is actually the Messiah. That's what has Herod upset. This isn't just any king, it's the Christ. And it's also clear that Herod doesn't know his Bible very well, even though the kings of Israel are supposed to write out their own copy every time they take the throne. He doesn't know his Bible. He has to ask the Pharisees about what's going on. And so he asks them, and they quote the first part of Micah 5.2. They knew that Micah was prophesying of the Messiah and the Christ, and so they knew that if there was an infant king that was being born, that child would be in Bethlehem. What Herod doesn't ask is who this king is exactly. If he had asked the scribes, the scribes could have just kept reading in Micah just a little bit further. In fact, in the same verse, actually. Micah 5, 2 to 4. This is where the scribes and the Pharisees are getting this understanding that he'd be born in Bethlehem. It says this, Him whose origins are of old from ancient times, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. That's what continues on after what they quoted out of Micah. That's what goes on after, from out of you a ruler shall be a shepherd for my people Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And so this king is not a king who has only come into being in his birth in Mary. This is a king whose origins are of old, of ancient times. Right? This is a different kind of king. Not just like he started his life right now. This is a king that is from long ago. And he's not just a king of the Jews, his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he's a king of peace, Micah says. So this is really a lot of information that sort of gets overlooked here because someone stopped reading to Herod, right? And if you're ever wondering about something, what something in the Bible means, if there's something that puzzles you in the Bible, and I've told you this before, the answer in almost every circumstance is just keep reading. If you read something in the Bible and you're wondering what it's talking about or you think that it's contradicting itself or you think that there's some mystery here, all you have to do is just keep reading. The Bible will explain itself. Now, I suppose Herod probably did read those verses and that they really did upset him because he doesn't want a king that comes to fulfill prophecy. He doesn't want a king whose name will be greater than his. And so he sends these magi on their way and he tells them, go and search diligently for the child and when you found him, bring me word that I may come too and worship him. But of course, we know that he doesn't want to worship Jesus at all. But the main thing here is that the wise men know where to continue their seeking. 
And they have their hearts set on finding Jesus. And not just finding Jesus, but worshiping him. And finally, they're seeking pays off. They get to actually, after all their seeking, they get to actually see Jesus. So it says, it goes on, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And so this star that had led them to Jerusalem, it now appears in some form again as they head to Bethlehem. And it actually leads them in such a way that they are able to arrive right at the house Jesus is now living in with Mary and Joseph. And when they saw the star, the text here tells us that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So these pagan magicians are filled with joy that they are being led to see Jesus. This star or this light could be an actual star. It could be planets. doesn't really matter much. They don't really care how or who is leading them to Jesus. They are not rejoicing over the star. They're rejoicing over where the star is leading them. They are rejoicing over the chance that they have to actually behold Jesus. Remember, Isaiah 60 said, Kings will come to the brightness of your dawn. And so these magi, these magicians, these wise men are coming to the light of the dawn of Jesus. The church is also meant to lead people to Jesus. The church is meant to be the light, not to be people overjoyed and thrilled about the church, but overjoyed and rejoicing that the church and the people of God lead them to Jesus. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. You, disciples, you, Christians, are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, that the wise men weren't excited about the star. They they rejoiced that they saw the star because it was leading them to Jesus. And when people see the church, when people see the body of Christ, when people see Christ's disciples, we should be a light to the world that people rejoice over. Not that they rejoice over our good deeds, not that they rejoice over who what great people we are. They rejoice that through us they get to behold Jesus in a way they'd never seen him before. People are not going to rejoice over us. They're not going to Rejoice over the church, Lakeside. But Lakeside is a city set on a hill that people can be guided to see Jesus. We let our light shine, not so that we are glorified, but so that people come to Jesus and glorify the Father. The star is not the center of the story. We are not the center of the story. Jesus is. But the star is still important. The light is still important. The star is not absent. And Jesus says, We're important in this process. God is working through us to be light that leads people to Jesus. So we are to be the light, just like the star. That's who the wise men saw, Jesus, after being led there. It says in verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. 
So after all their seeking, they finally get to see Jesus. And that seeing Jesus finally for themselves, it unleashes all the worship and all the honoring that they had pent up inside themselves. They had set out on their journey a long time ago from Persia or Babylon or wherever it was to the east, and they had traveled all that way, and they had worship on their mind from the very beginning. And they got sidetracked to the palace and got the runaround there. They finally got some information. They get over to Bethlehem. And finally they see Jesus and finally they get to worship. Now let's keep in mind here that lots and lots of other people looked at Jesus, but they didn't see. Right? This is months after his birth. Right? Not many mothers can resist showing off a baby. But Herod didn't even know he was born. No one in the region recognized him as Messiah. I doubt that he was that big of a secret. I mean, if shepherds are anything like blue-collar tradesmen around here in Halliburton, they probably share lots of news at the coffee shop, right? I mean, these shepherds had angels come and sing to them and then directed them to the baby where they saw the Messiah was born, and then like months go by and nobody knows that this happened? I doubt it, right? Months go by and nobody sees this you know, somewhat scandalously whispered about possibly illegitimate child of Mary who was engaged to Joseph and got pregnant and blah, 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 blah. Like, you think nobody in Bethlehem heard about that? There were plenty of people who looked at Jesus, but they didn't see him, right? They didn't see who he really was. But God opened the eyes of these wise men so that they could see who Jesus really was. The Bible is crystal clear in this regard. As Christians, we don't argue people into the kingdom. We don't bully people into the kingdom. We don't trick people into the kingdom. We don't bribe people into the kingdom. All we do as Christians is just make a way for people to actually see Jesus and then Jesus draws them into the kingdom. When when God opens the spiritual eyes of people's hearts to actually not just look at Jesus, but see Jesus, he's irresistible. And, And you know what I'm talking about because most of you, I pray and hope many and most, almost all of you have seen Jesus in this way. And when you saw Jesus like that in your life, he was irresistible. Some of you might not even have been looking for him. But for whatever reason, you saw him. And then others of you were seeking after him, and you saw him through the light of the Christians around you. And on seeing him, all of a sudden, unbeknownst to you, unexpected to you, in seeing Jesus, he suddenly became irresistible. You saw him like you had never seen him before in your life. And that's how we lead people to Christ. We don't argue them. We don't bully them. We don't trick them. We don't bribe them. We just let them see Jesus and allow their eyes to be open to who he is. And when God opens people's spiritual eyes so they can finally see Jesus, he is irresistible. His grace and his love and his mercy is compelling. And if you have not seen Jesus as irresistible yet, then you just have to listen to some of the people sitting next to you right now. 1 John 1-3, to the Apostle John says it this way, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. He says, The life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you 
also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What's John saying here? He's saying, we've seen Jesus, and we just want you to see what we've seen. Right? We proclaim to you what we've seen, and when you see what we see, you will be with us. Because you can't not be with us after you see this. And so Matthew's gospel opens itself with a very clear message. Come and see Jesus. Matthew's gospel, very interestingly, is going to end with a different message, which is go and be Jesus. But he's got them both in there. It starts with come and see, and then it says go and tell about Jesus. And his people, the church, have the same message. We say, especially in seasons like right now, we say come and see Jesus. Just behold the Christ. And in order to get them to come, sometimes we have to go and tell about Jesus to get them to come and see. But all their pent-up longing comes out when they worship. These wise men finally see with spiritual eyes, and they see Jesus for who he is, and all that pent-up longing comes out then as worship. They want to see Jesus because they want to worship Jesus. And So they're seeking, and they're seeing, and then there's worshiping. And it says, as we read on, it says, and they fell down and worshiped him. So the first response of these pagan magicians, the the first response really of any of us when we finally see Jesus is to humbly fall down in worship. Fall down physically? Maybe. Fall down spiritually? Certainly. The, The falling down part of worship here is an emblem of our spiritual bankruptcy. It's a it's a symbol of our need. It's a it's a picture of our surrender. It's like the prodigal son returning to the father. We have no money. We have no means of our own. We are empty. We have no sword in our hands. We have no rebellion left in us. We surrender. We are finished with rebellion. We have nothing to offer. Spiritually, we fall down as an emblem of our bankruptcy, of our need, of our brokenness. We surrender. And when we fall down in this way, Physically, maybe some of us have to fall down in this way to really kick us over the edge spiritually. When we fall down in this way, our hope lies completely in the mercy of Jesus. Worshiping Jesus in this way is a picture of our love and our hope in Him. The word for worship in Hebrew, proskuneo, literally means to kiss towards. And so... All this time that the Old Testament has been talking about worship and all this time that Paul and the apostles are talking about the worship, all the times that, that, that the Gospels are talking about worship and, and the writers are talking about worship in the Bible, every time they say that, they're saying they're kissing towards God. They're kissing towards Jesus. So when we fall down physically or spiritually, before Jesus, we are kissing towards Him. In other words, the, the, the wise men here in their worship are saying, Jesus, You are our greatest affection. Jesus, You are our greatest treasure. And so it's worth asking the question of ourselves, what do you kiss towards on a regular basis? What is your affection and your heart set on? What captures your attention and your energy? Because we all worship something, So is it mostly Jesus for you? And you can just look at your life and your action. Are you falling down every time you encounter Jesus spiritually? Is is your encounters with Jesus one in which you are filled with hope and expectancy and affection and treasuring and you are kissing towards Him? 
Because it's hard to make the argument that Jesus has captured your affections and you treasure him when you never even spend any time with him, let alone worship him. It's hardly a convincing claim to have love for Jesus when you begrudge giving him any attention, or perhaps even worse, when you begrudge his attention on you. Right? You know, when he kind of creeps in there in your thoughts and in your conscience and Jesus starts to speak to you through his word or through his people and you actually begrudge his attention, let alone give him any of your own. So it's worth examining in our hearts as Matthew would have his Jewish readers examine their hearts. Here are pagan sorcerers worshiping their Messiah. Meanwhile, their king an entire city of Orthodox Jews has nothing to do with them. You see what Matthew's doing here? He's saying, there's a contrast we need to examine. There's a conflict going on. These wise men are under no obligation to come and worship Jesus, except that they knew that they had discovered the greatest treasure of their lives. They looked up in the night sky one night, and they saw something was going on in the universe that they had to know about. And they came to discover it was Christ the King and He was their greatest treasure. Not only did they worship Him, they have His affections, but He has their treasures. And the final point is treasuring Jesus. It says, Then opening their treasures, they offered Him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The gifts of these, that these magi offer to Jesus have been examined from every possible angle. You can go to different commentaries in your reading and you can read all different thoughts on what these different gifts might mean. Kind of like the star in the story, right? People are really excited about what the star might work and what the, what the, what the gifts might mean. But sometimes you can focus on those little details and maybe in the process miss the main point. So we can ask ourselves, does the gold represent royalty? Does frankincense represent the high priestly prayers at the altar of incense? Does the myrrh represent the eventual burial and resurrection of Jesus? It's entirely possible. It's entirely possible. It's true that Jesus is our king. It's true that he is our high priest and intercedes for us in our prayers. He, it's true that he was born in order to die. It's possible that these magi are unknowingly symbolizing the life of this infant king that is to come. But that probably is not the main point. It would be very subtle if that was the main point that Matthew was trying to make. The most obvious meaning in these treasures being given to Jesus is that to these wise men who have sought and saw and worshipped the Christ is that Jesus is their greatest treasure. Jesus is the pearl of great price that a merchant finds and purchases for himself. Jesus is the treasure found buried in a field and the man goes and sells all that he has in order to purchase that field. The wise men offer their most precious gifts to say this to the one that they are honoring. You, Jesus, are more valuable than any riches we possess. You are the greatest treasure. In finding you, we gladly give these things up. And there is always going to be a conflict between our affection for Christ and our treasuring of Christ and our treasuring of the world. Because we're still in this world and we're still in our flesh. And there will constantly be this conflict. Do you treasure Christ or do you treasure the things of the world? Do you love God or do you love the stuff God gives you? And the wise men are saying... Take our stuff. You're worth more. Gold, 
incense, you know, fragrance, perfume, expensive oils, whatever it is. Whatever it is that you treasure that's interfering with your affection for Jesus, you need to give that up. If, if there's some worldly thing that you really love that lies close to your heart as in, and is in constant competition with Jesus for your affection, then you should be like these wise men and lay it down at Jesus' feet. Say, you need to take this. Because I don't want anything else in competition with you. You are my greatest treasure. It could be gold. It could be the attention of others. It could be the praise of men. It could be a certain relationship. It could be a way of life. It could be a worldview or a political stance. It could be your personal time. It could be your recreational time. It could be your career. It could be the attention of the opposite sex or the same sex. It could even be your kids. Whatever it is, if Jesus is not higher than that, then He isn't really Lord of your life. And so these pagan magicians have come bearing these treasures and they've laid these treasures down at Jesus' feet saying, you are our greatest affection. You are our greatest treasure. Take this stuff. We don't want the stuff. We want you. And at some point you have to say of your own stuff, Jesus, this is yours. It's not mine. You're better than any relationship I can have with any guy or girl. You are better than anything that I can do in my career. You're better than any security I can acquire. You're better better than any vacation I can take. You're better than anything I can watch on Netflix. You're better than you're better than everything. And so I'm not going to put my hope and treasure and covet that thing anymore. I'm going to lay it at your feet and say, Jesus, you take it. Take it right out of my life if you have to. Because you are richer, you are greater, you are more fulfilling, you are more secure, you are wiser, you are a greater source of everything for me. That's what laying down treasures at the feet of Jesus means. It means he's your greatest treasure. It means if you found a treasure like him buried in a field, you would go and sell everything in order to acquire that treasure. And that's what these wise men do. They sought after Jesus to worship Him. They saw Jesus for who He really was with spiritual eyes that others did not have. They worshipped Him. He was their greatest affection and they treasured Him. He was their greatest treasure. And so we have these key lessons in Matthew in this account of the wise men. They sought, they saw, they worshipped, they treasured. These pagan magicians were led to Jesus by the natural revelation of God. They could see what even the Jews were unable to see. It happened right in their midst. The wise men rejoiced with exceeding great joy as they were received by the King of Kings, their greatest affection, their greatest treasure. And through it all, Matthew is hammering the point home. Jesus has come not just for Israel. He's not just a tribal God. He's not just king of the Jews. Matthew wants to make this point clear. He has come for those who are far off. You may be far to the east, or you may be far to the west. You may be far to the left, or you may be far to the right. Whatever farness you are from Jesus, Matthew makes it clear. He has come to draw to him those who are far off. Those who would find him and seek him and see him and rejoice to find him. And so we get to ask ourselves this question this morning. Are you a wise man? Are you a wise woman? Are you a wise teenager? Are you a wise child? Do you seek Jesus? Do you desire to see him with spiritual eyes in his word 
and know Him? Do you worship Him? Do you kiss towards Jesus as your greatest affection? Do you treasure Him? Is there anything that you hang on to that you would not lay down at His feet at the end of the day? Is Lakeside a church that rejoices with great joy and celebrates what's happened in our midst? Or are we indifferent or even disturbed? I hope not. I mean, I heard you singing this morning. I see your faces when you come through the door. I see you talking when you're having a coffee, and I see you praying for each other in the lobby. I am not at all concerned that we do not know and celebrate and worship our King with the opposite of indifference, with great joy. And that's what this season is about. It's about celebrating our King because the Savior has come into our midst Let's let the people of Halliburton see our joy, see our light, and by us being the light of the world through us, come to see Jesus and worship him and make him their greatest treasure of their own. Let's pray. Father God, I just give you thanks for Matthew because he's one of the most succinct and clever and spirit-infused writers that has written a gospel. I mean, they all are, but Matthew's just his own special kind of writer. And Father, I thank you that we have this account that other gospels miss and that we hear about the wise men and what you are saying through Isaiah and what you are saying through Micah and what you are saying in your prophets and what you're saying through Matthew, that the nations and kings will come to behold the dawning of this light. And Father, we thank you that your light has dawned and that kings have come and have bowed down to the king of kings. We thank you that your son is our king, that we've put our hope in him, that we can rejoice with exceeding great joy. And Father, I pray that we would take to heart the need for us to see with spiritual eyes, to have our greatest affection on this king and to treasure him above all else like these pagan magicians have taught us. And Father, above all of that, just how amazing is it that you call everyone from every corner of the earth because this is the king from ancients of days, whose renown will be great throughout the earth. How amazing is it that you call everyone to worship your king exactly equally? Everybody's got the same chance to come and see and know and be filled with the love of Jesus Christ. Wow. We should just never stop celebrating. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.